following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. with me as I read John chapter 12, the first eight verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure Nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, But because he was a thief, having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of our God. There's an old Broadway musical song from quite a few decades ago that many might remember with a famous phrase in it, the best things in life are free. Well, don't you believe it? In my experience, many of the very best things in life are the most costly. Think of a long-lasting marriage relationship, one spouse investing in the other with discipline, with faithfulness, with deep commitment over decades, a husband and a wife uniting and building a life together. That is a costly endeavor. Think of raising children to become responsible, moral, spiritually vibrant adults. You know that you have to spend a good share of your pocketbook. And beyond that, You have to have a constant kind of vigilance, discipline, prayer, and tears shed to raise children in this or any day. How about education? Don't tell us that's free. It's not only the tuition bill, but all the exertion of brain cells and the turning of textbook pages, real education is not free. If anything in our lives actually does come to us free, quite often, maybe not always, but much of the time, it's because someone else has paid some kind of a cost on our behalf. In that vein, of course, the Scriptures declare you are not your own. You were bought with a price, with the precious blood of Christ. 
God paid a price, a staggering cost, in order to buy men and women and ransom them to be part of his eternal family in Christ. I am just going to assume today that you know we don't buy salvation, nor do we repay God. Having received it freely, you say, well, all right, I know I didn't buy it, but I ought to try as hard as I can to pay God back. No, that's not it either. And yet, awareness of God's wonderful free gift ought to draw from us in the, in the freest kind of way, the most liberating way, a response of gratitude and thanksgiving and worship that would cause us to say there's, there's no limit on what I would wish to do for him in light of all that he's done for me. And so we come to think about the subject of lavish sacrifices of our lives, not just dollars, time, investment of ourselves, service, all the ways that we might respond to show the Lord how important he is in our lives. And here in John 12, we have a wonderful action and a very memorable uh, lesson in exactly this. Keep in mind where we are here, right after the resurrection of Lazarus, literally a man had been dead many days, several days. He's here at the dinner. It's given by his sisters, served by them as hostesses. This is, as we piece together the schedule of the late days of the life of Jesus, this is the last Sabbath day of Jesus on earth. And he's spending it with a happy pre-Passover dinner. They have the, the custom was to have a large, more or less celebratory uh, dinner on the Sabbath preceding the Passover. That's what this must be, because this is the last day that Jesus will be on earth as a Jewish man celebrating the Passover, approaching the week of Passover. This is the beginning of the last week of his life. And yet here he is. I'm sure he was smiling. I'm sure he was talking, sharing the things that friends share together when they enjoy good fellowship. He's not sitting in a corner brooding because he alone knows the terrible things that are coming for him. He's not self-absorbed. He's investing himself in others. And so the spotlight of our passage, as you probably know, this memorable section of John falls on the woman, Mary of Bethany, the younger sister of Lazarus, and not on what she says because she doesn't speak here, but on what she did. She shows us in her action, without speaking anything, volumes about how to worship our Savior. I could summarize my theme approaching this passage this way. It is vain to expect a person, any person, to do much for Christ who has no sense of indebtedness to Christ. Let's think about that. The first point I draw from John 12 is to show you a believer's natural extravagance in expression towards Christ. Now, just keeping things straight biblically, each of the four Gospels has an account of a woman anointing Jesus. 
We believe it's probable that three of them describe this incident. One is different. The one you might think of in Luke 7 is the incident where someone unnamed called a sinful woman came and cried her tears at his feet and used her hair as a towel to wipe his feet. That, we believe, was a different incident, another woman, an earlier time. But both Matthew and Mark also tell of a, an anointing, Matthew 26, Mark 14, that seemed to involve Mary of Bethany. The, the key difference is in Matthew and Mark, she anoints his head. Maybe that seems like a real problem, but it shouldn't be. It's probable that she did both. It's kind of a head-to-toe operation. She anointed his head and then his feet. We think that's a very natural way to understand the Scripture as it is relayed to us. It also helps to keep something straight, and that is to understand how people enjoyed a dinner in those days. No dining room tables 30 inches off the floor with nice Chippendale chairs or something. Not not that arrangement at all. They had a, a table that was very low, maybe about 18 inches or so from the floor. They sat on mats or cushions and usually supported themselves on one arm or one elbow with feet behind them, leaning towards the table, serving themselves at the table. Very different arrangement than you and I are used to. I don't think any of you will look forward to a Thanksgiving dinner served exactly that way later this month. But it does help you understand the physical arrangement here. Martha was busying herself with the dinner, bringing the food, supervising the servants. Her sister Mary was involved in that, but then at some point she stepped away and maybe went off to a storage cupboard or another room and came back with something in her hand that perhaps she concealed a little bit in the fold of her robe at first. And then she came close to Jesus. We've all been in a restaurant probably when somebody dropped a plate or a glass and it smashed, haven't you? You know how the bustle and the buzz of conversation (gasps) all stops all of a sudden. I was in a restaurant once where a, a poor unfortunate girl dropped an entire tray. Huge crash. Manager, man who had no business being a manager in my view, came and chewed her out in front of the whole restaurant. Not a thing to do. Well, anyway... Here's, here's a crash, a, a breaking of glass. And everybody stops for a moment. What was that? The other Gospels describe it as a jar of alabaster. The jar itself was something precious and unusual. Mary had come with a jar of perfume, and now as they looked at her, having anointed his head, she was on her knees in the posture of a servant, anointing the feet of Jesus. All of a sudden, a room that had been filled with the smells, the delicious things, roast lamb probably, fresh fresh baked bread, wine, all of a sudden there was another fragrance, overpowering all of it. The fragrance is described as being that of pure nard. The plant it comes from is called spike nard. It comes from India apparently highly prized in the ancient world, something that would be an imported substance bought at great price, described elsewhere as worthy of a workman's whole year of compensation. Certainly thousands of dollars involved in this. 
You wonder, where did Mary get this from? Were they just a very wealthy house that could afford this? We wonder if perhaps it was an heirloom, something handed down perhaps as a dowry gift. Although she wasn't married, but perhaps her mother had passed on and left her this as a, as a great prize. You know, something for a woman to use on a special occasion. You women know how you put on perfume, you know, a little dab here and a little dab there and a little dab there and a little dab there. That's it. You don't pour it out. Not if it's Chanel number no. 5 or something highly expensive from the perfume counter. Well, it says Mary broke the jar and poured out this expensive perfume. And there were probably literally gasps and whispers in the room at what she did because you also need to know a little thing about the first century times that a woman, all of them had long hair. They didn't cut their hair short. They would tie it up some kind of a roll or a bun or something with a scarf. And a woman of that time, a Jewish woman, did not let down her hair in public for anyone except her husband. To do otherwise was thought to be shameful and brazen. So here's Mary, letting down her hair and using it as a towel to rub this expensive perfume into the feet of Jesus. You don't need an explanation to know that this is an act of unbridled, unselfconscious, spontaneous worship, that even the expensive jar, which itself was valuable, was broken, and both jar and contents offered, container and contents, without restraint, paid in homage to the Son of God. She gave the best thing she had, and she gave all of it. And I almost have the sense that If she'd been called upon to do it again, she would have mortgaged the house to be able to do it another time. Here was an extravagant, certainly this deserves the word, extravagant thanksgiving, a lavish offering in thanks for what she had received. She and Martha had received their brother back again to life. But I think there was more than just that. It wasn't simply about Lazarus. It was about Jesus and who he was and what he had become at the center of her world. And she was bowing before him, worshiping him, giving him the very best thing that she had. An old commentator from Scotland, Alexander McLaren, had a comment that couldn't say it any better. McLaren wrote this, True love is always profuse in its expression." It knows no better use for the best that it owns than to lavish it upon the beloved one. It does not pause to calculate practicality as it might be measured by a colder eye. It takes subtle delight even in the absence of any practical result. That's what love does. And I ask as we look at this wonderful act of worship by Mary that's so memorable here in the page of the New Testament, what do you think as you measure your own response to your God and Savior by this kind of all-consuming devotion? Do any of us 
come close to offering him anything like this. Let me see if I can break it down, make it even a little more practical for you. What, what measure of eagerness did you have as you rose today? Of course, refreshed by an extra hour of sleep even. To get up and say, it's the Lord's day. What a delight, what a joy. I'm going to the house of my God to worship him and to raise my voice and, and to be instructed from his word. How great that I'm starting out my week this way. Well, I have no doubt that some of you maybe had that attitude. But did you? You don't have to raise your hand. Ask yourself. Or did you come out of a habit, maybe a semi-dull obligation? Maybe you feel like you're forced to be here. And you say, I certainly didn't have any attitude like that. What about when you decided the amount of the offering that you gave today? Uh Uh-oh, he's getting close to home. Grab your wallet, everybody. What about as you calculated your giving for the Lord? Honestly, when you tried to estimate, what should I bring to the Lord? Was it based on what I have left over? I had a lot of bills lately, a lot of debts. That car just needed a transmission. I have to take care of myself. I have to take care of the household. I have to pay the kids' college tuition. But is your giving done in an attitude of the Lord's gift is first? Or that his gift is, well, if there's something left, I'll give it to him. Truthfully, why must much of our adoration of the Lord our God seem shallow and tawdry, and even downright stingy sometime compared to what Mary of Bethany did here in John 12. Is there a place in our lives, maybe not every time, all the time, but is there any place in our life for doing extravagant things, lavish things, things that exceed the bounds of what people say is reasonable? as we respond to our God. Well, there was one man present who thought there wasn't such a place, and you hear from him in my second point as we talk about an unbeliever's estimate of waste. John 12, 5 brings us the rasping voice of Judas Iscariot. He doesn't speak a lot in the New Testament. He, too, is known more for what he did than what he says, but here he speaks. Bear in mind when this is. The Sabbath right before Passion Week, Judas was working an arrangement with the temple authorities to sell access to Jesus. If that had not already happened, it was going to happen in a matter of a day or two. Keep that in the picture. When this man raises his voice and says, what a waste. Why was not this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages, thousands of dollars. Didn't Judas do a good job of betraying his character in those few words? And John, of course, writes with hindsight knowledge here. He's writing around the 90s A.D., some many years, decades after this all happened in 30-something A.D. And he had hindsight to know the after the fact about Judas as he wrote. And he said, he didn't speak this because he cared about the poor. 
He cared about money. And in fact, he was a thief. It must have been that examining the the community purse, the disciples' common purse that he was to buy supplies with after his death showed that it was way short of what it should have been. He didn't speak out of anything authentic in terms of love for Christ. He only proved what Jesus said, to whom little is forgiven, the same loves only little. So I come to this theme. We cannot expect superficial false believers to do anything for Christ, lacking a sense of deep indebtedness to Christ. This same critical spirit is alive today within every Christian church of any denomination. I'm not speaking narrowly of our congregation. I'm speaking very broadly. Let any Christian assembly see somebody breaking out with new zeal, a new convert who's truly alive and wants to witness and wants to passionately observe worship and work for Christ and upsidles some character from the back pew ready with a bucket of cold water to pour on that lest it start infecting the rest of the church. I'll make a comment that'll get me in trouble with the pet lovers, probably my own wife as a matter of fact, but do you know that this country, we Americans, spend several times over more money every year on pet food than the collective total of all Christian churches spend on missions to send the gospel around the world? That's not anti-pet. It's just giving you a measurement, ladies and gentlemen. We can feed our animals, but we're not interested in people who haven't heard the gospel. And it's easy, and again, in almost every church, you're sooner or later going to have someone when a lot is being spent on missions who will say, why aren't we spending that money on problems here at home? We've got so many problems at our own doorstep. True enough. Ask the person who makes that comment what they're doing about the problems right at their doorstep. How are they sacrificially investing themselves in that which they're saying is so important? Many Christians are football fans. I count myself as one. I believe we now have the second NFL team. There's at least one that has spent a billion, with a B, a billion dollars on a football stadium in which to play 16 games or possibly a few more per year. And if you're a football fan of that particular team, you say, well, why not? Of course, lots of revenue turning over. We need the best. Oh, by the way, in 20 years, we're going to need a new one because that one will be out of date. Well, isn't it interesting that many who don't shrug at that kind of an expense, many who live in their own $500,000 or $700,000 houses think it's a disgrace that a congregation, a gathering of believers needs to spend three or five or seven or ten million dollars to build a house of worship, a facility where the gospel can be proclaimed and young people can be reached for Christ, that can be a center for sending out into the community the gospel message. They say, oh, what a waste. How you throw money around. By the way, that facility will probably serve for a hundred years or more when the football stadium has been replaced twice. 
Let's apply ourselves to this text for a moment and ask, what is going to be our life's memorial? That which survives us, that which speaks about us when we're gone from this earth. You see, I I sometimes do funerals, of course, that happen in a funeral home, and after I've greeted the family, I might be waiting for 10 minutes for the service to start and sitting in the the office of the funeral director or maybe a sales office or something where off to one side and there'll usually be funeral literature there and something from the monument company. I've looked through many monument company brochures to kill a few minutes. And I read the extolling descriptions of how you can buy yourself a forever lasting monument of the finest granite carved and beautifully etched and everything about it will tell the world who you were in a lasting way. Well, I read this text, John 12, 7, where Jesus says of Mary's act of costly worship, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Here was the woman who anointed the Son of God for his death and Mark adds in his gospel, Mark 14, 9 says, wherever the gospel is preached through the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We prove it because we're talking about her this morning. Two millennia after she did this, she's remembered. And I ask, would you prefer to have the finest memorial made of granite, carved beautifully, the largest stone in the cemetery? Or would you rather have Mary's living monument of extravagant, lavish, open-handed, over-the-top offering up of her life in love of Christ? A disciple of Jesus Christ whose checkbook or credit cards are dominated by self-interest an indulgence of personal comforts, whose schedule only grudgingly finds a rare hour for worship, whose heart is closed against spending time and effort to truly serve needy people who show up right in your own circle of relationships, that person before God is a grand self-contradiction. I've stood at Niagara Falls probably more than almost anybody in the room because I grew up within 40 minutes of it, and every time out-of-town company came, off to the falls. I've seen it a lot. And yet I never fail to marvel at Niagara Falls. I'm sure most of you or many of you have seen it. You stand there and you are just staggered at the onrush of water coming over that falls. And I always think to myself, you know, it's been four years or now it's been longer periods of time since my youth that I get there. I think I was there about six years ago. And every time I come, I think, why, this volume of water's been coming over the falls just like this every single second of every day since hundreds of years ago. And if Christ delays hundreds of more years that I haven't seen it happening, think of the staggering volume of this water. And often then I think to myself, think of the staggering volume volume of the love and mercy of my God for me and for you. 
and then take a measurement of what I've done to answer it. It's absurd almost. Christian, if you want to be remembered in the Lord's eyes, think about sacrifice of yourself. Think about measuring with a lavish measure as you give and as you serve. Think about pouring out your time and your resources, going way beyond, oh, what what do you think everybody else gives? Well, there's so many people in the church, and if you divide the church budget by 1,200 members, you come up with, oh, I can't afford that much. I'll give a third of that amount. Ridiculous. Forget it. What has God given you? And what would be a lavish, God-honoring portion of what he has given you, not just in dollars, but your time, your interest, your concern, your involvement in other people's lives. I repeat the theme that I began with here. It is vain to expect any person to do much for Christ who has no sense of debt to Christ. Do you have a debt to Christ? If you do, how are you responding? Are you part of the fellowship of those who live large, who pursue large visions and dreams? Our elders have asked me next Sunday to carry this theme a step further and apply it to what we're doing and what we're planning and what we're hoping for as a congregation in the future days. And I hope to be able to do that. But for now, I close by saying to you, Calvary truly cost us nothing. And yet, it demands from us all things. The hymn writer Isaac Watts ended probably his greatest hymn. We sang one of his to open the service today, but one of his more familiar and possibly greatest hymn in the last verse always gives me a catch in the throat when I sing were the whole realm of nature mine. If I owned the universe, the hymn writer sang. If I owned the stars and the mountain ranges and the continents, that would be a present too small to give in answer to love that is so amazing and so divine that it demands my soul, my life, and my all. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Mary. Thank you for her woman's heart who did not have to pull out the pocket calculator and say, what would the narrow percentage be that I should give to my Lord? But the heart that looked and said, what's the best thing I have? I've got to give that. Pray, O God, in this day and age, when we bring not bottles of ointment, but checks from the bank, time from our schedules, talent out of those things you've given us to be able to do, that you would teach us to measure as Mary did for your honor and praise. Amen.